0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon in today for Julia Chatterley. And just ahead on today's show... New developments in the U.S. debt ceiling crisis. A source telling CNN that U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has agreed to meet with President Biden on the issue next week. This is significant news as the U.S. rapidly runs out of money to pay its bills. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying Monday that the U.S. could default on its debt for the first time in history as soon as June 1st. That's without a congressional deal to raise the borrowing limit. Now, so far, Republicans and Democrats are still really far apart on how to find a solution. A market reaction to the new debt ceiling danger is still fairly muted. U.S. futures under a bit of pressure there after a mostly flat start to May trading. Europe's in the red as well after its long holiday weekend. New data today also showing inflation in the eurozone on the rise again, although core prices did ease unexpectedly. A bit of good news there. Global investors also bracing for the U.S. Federal Reserve's interest rate decision tomorrow. Now, a quarter point hike is still expected. The Fed making clear that it can fight inflation while also keeping tabs on threats to financial stability like the recent banking turmoil. We're going to have much more on the Fed and the markets later in the show. But first to the latest on the debt ceiling. Arlette Sines is live in Washington for us. Arlette, good morning. So, look, the two leaders haven't met since... February, I want to say. So this was a major development. But really, how optimistic can we be that this leads to any real breakthroughs? Well, Rahel,
2: that's the big question. Right now, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy remain far apart in their positions on how exactly to deal with the debt limit, but they are agreeing on one thing, and that is to sit down here at the White House one week from today to talk about the path forward relating to the debt limit. Now, this will be the first time that the two leaders have met since early February. They will be joined by the other congressional leaders on both the Republican and Democratic side. But heading into this meeting next week, White House officials are insistent that President Biden's position remains unchanged. He wants to see a debt limit increase without any conditions attached to it. They do say that in this conversation, he is willing to start talking about the way forward on the budget and appropriations process for next year. But this all runs counter to what you've heard House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Republicans call for. They still want those deep spending cuts tied to any debt limit increase. And Republicans over in the Senate right now, are really keeping the ball in Kevin McCarthy's court, saying that he is the one driving this process. Now, this all comes as there is this real heightened sense of urgency after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen yesterday said that the U.S. could default on its debt by June 1st. That is less than a month away. And if that were to happen, it would have catastrophic consequences on the economy, affecting millions of Americans, cutting benefits for people like veterans and senior citizens. So right now, they're heading into this meeting with this heightened alarm surrounding that uh, potential default. And really what this uh, whole situation represents is it's the highest stakes moment in the showdown that we've seen between President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy in this era of divided government. The question is whether the two sides will be able to come together to try to avoid any potential catastrophe for the economy if it were to default. Right
1: now, both sides seem to be staying in their own quarters. Hmm. A lot of ground to cover and really not a lot of time to get it done, at least according to Janet Yellen's uh, estimations. Arlette, how about the likelihood that we see perhaps an extension, which doesn't really solve the problem, but at least buys everyone a few more months? I mean, that could always be a
2: possibility. if Once these leaders get into the room uh, and as that uh, June 1st date uh, quickly approaches, that could be an option that the White House and Congress decide to go down. But when you've seen these types of debt limit fights in the past, even thinking back to 2011, when Biden was then vice president, uh, they did try to have a longer-term debt limit uh, increase in order to avoid having this type of negotiation come up again. Let's not forget that next year, 2024, is also a political year as both President Biden is running for re-election and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is hoping to hold on to the Republican majority and send a Republican to the White House. So any type of punting uh, would just continue this fight into that political year. But it's very clear at this moment that both of these sides are sticking to their positions and we'll see what comes together
1: over the course of the next few weeks we sure will be watching. And for now, at least, the markets don't appear to be too concerned, but time is ticking. And so something to watch for sure. Arlette signs, thank you. We want to turn now to the worsening crisis in Sudan. The U.N. estimating over 100,000 people have fled to neighboring countries and three times as many have become refugees Within their own country. This is fierce fighting between the two rival generals continues. Larry Madowo is in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. So, Larry, you've been speaking with refugees, you've been witnessing the evacuations. What's the very latest there?
3: The evacuations continue. We're expecting another ship to arrive here in Jeddah from Port Sudan in the next two or three hours. This is the trend that we've seen since the conflict began. And the reason why Saudi Arabia has become the main landing point is. The the closest people can get to safety in Sudan is Port Sudan. That is about, usually in the best of times, about 8 to 12 hours, because it's more than 830 kilometers, over 500 miles. But during this war zone, it's taking some as much as 30 hours. One person told us it took them 36 hours. When they get there, they hope that they can be lucky to get on a Saudi ship that's running this shuttle service between Port Sudan and Jeddah, or... In the case of the U.S., they ran the first U.S. naval ship, Brunswick, that arrived here yesterday with about 105 Americans as well as other nationalities. The number of people that need to be evacuated from Port Sudan is massive. And those who are getting shuttled across the Red Sea are those with dual nationality they're foreigners or they're Sudanese and German or British or American or another country that they have residency here in Saudi Arabia, the vast majority of Sudanese people cannot use that route of evacuation. That is why you're seeing these numbers from the United Nations about the number of people who are already displaced, 100,000. And as this continues, the projection is that it could get to 800,000 people displaced, and we're only in week three of this conflict. The longer this runs on, the more people will have to leave, because as we speak, Already it's difficult to get food and water and medicines. It's not safe for people with kids, for families to live in the middle of residential areas that are constantly under gunfire and artillery and bombardment. And people, whenever there's a lull in the fighting, they try and go to neighboring states or make that difficult journey across the country to the east to Port Sudan and hope that they can find a way out of the conflict. So. It's just going to be a need that's growing as the conflict runs on, that people want to either go to neighboring countries like Egypt or uh, South Sudan or Eritrea or Ethiopia or Chad. And those who can will go to Port Sudan and go across the Red Sea here, Rahel. Mm.
1: Larry, it's it's a great point. Just the the 800,000 figure just really puts into context, at least right now, how massive of a a scale this conflict is expected to create uh, the humanitarian crisis we are seeing unfold. Larry Madoo, thank you. To Ukraine now, where more than 100,000 Russian troops have been killed or wounded in Ukraine in just the past five months. That's according to the latest U.S. estimate. The White House says that the fighting has exhausted Russia's military stockpiles and its armed forces. But the Kremlin has firmly rejected those U.S. numbers. Nick Payton-Walsh joins us now from Zaporizhia. So, uh, Nick, those figures coming from White House official John Kirby, who also said that this is a key sign that the winter offensive backfired. What are you seeing on the ground there?
4: Yeah, look, there's no doubt at all that the Russian winter offensive has been pretty much disastrous. Their initial goal of taking the symbolic but strategically not that useful city of Bakhmut, well, they've not managed to do it. And in fact, as we speak now, Ukrainian officials are suggesting that Russian troops are abandoning positions on its outskirts. And her key Russian official, or I should say Russian figure, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Mercenary Group, has spent the weekend saying that if he doesn't get more artillery shells quickly, he may have to start pulling his mercenaries back from Bakhmut. We've done a lot of the fighting for it. So Moscow sending out signals at this stage that their winter offensive simply hasn't gone how they wanted. And that's being echoed by Ukraine, who are themselves looming towards their own counter-offensive. John Kirby's comments, it's important to give the details here. That headline figure of 100,000 casualties since December is extraordinary. I mean, you know, bad maths. It's about one in every 500 uh, adult males in Russia between the age of 15 and 64. So a lot of passing has to be done as to how they came to that number. He went on to say, we talked about 20,000 dead, so 80,000 of those by their estimation injured. This is from what he referred to as downgraded intelligence, essentially something that's been classified differently to be able to make it public. Half of those dead, though, are thought to be Wagner fighters, who you can suggest pretty much were involved in the fight for Bakhmut. So catastrophic numbers, certainly uncertainty as to where the United States got this. That's the nature of intelligence. But bear in mind, there's no coincidence here that this extraordinary figure is emerging on the eve of Ukraine's counter-offensive. Washington keen to pump up, to amplify the idea that Russia has had a very bad winter, which is indeed the case, and catastrophic casualties. What we've been hearing about their from the front line itself, even speaking to Russian soldiers, or prisoners, I should say, recruited by the Russian Ministry of Defence. One spoke to me from his hospital bed a few months ago, injured, concerned he was about to get sent back to the front line. So it's been an absolutely atrocious winter for Russia on the front lines. It's probably going to be a very bad spring indeed. And these numbers coming from Washington, a clear sense of the information war, certainly we're hearing uh, from the United States, backing up uh, Ukraine, where they've invested a lot of military expertise, equipment and training, but probably too a reflection really of how awful things have been for Moscow on the front line. It does feel like they're probably about to get worse. Rahel? Mm.
1: Nick Payton Walsh live for us there in Zaporizhia. Thank you. We're going to turn to Israel now, where we are getting reports of rocket fire from Gaza. That's according to the Israeli military. Twenty-two rockets were fired, and four were intercepted. The rest fell in open areas. It's the second salvo since the death of a Palestinian prisoner in an Israeli prison. Hader Anan died after an 87-day hunger strike. He was detained in February on suspicion of being a member of a terrorist organization. Palestinian detainees in an Israeli prison in the West Bank. Well, they've now gone and begun a general hunger strike and protest. The Israel defense forces say that several rockets fired from Gaza earlier had come down in open areas. To business news now, he has been called the godfather of artificial intelligence. Now Jeffrey Hinton says that he quit his job at Google to warn about the dangers of the technology that he helped develop. His decision to step down comes as alarm bells about the risk of A.I. powered chatbots to spread misinformation and also displace jobs really grows. In March, several key figures in tech signed a letter calling for a pause in A.I. development for at least six months, citing, quote, profound risks to society and humanity. Now, among those signing the letter was Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. And take a listen to what he told my colleague Caitlin Collins a little earlier today.
5: I'm not like worried, I I believe in fear and leaving a life of fear. I just believe that when some powerful technology is introduced, uh, we should look that almost all technology brings some good things to us and Mm -hmm. some bad things and we should be responsible and we should study these things and kind of prepare people for what's coming and take steps maybe to um, uh, keep it from being too horrible and bad. For example, you know, look at how many bad people out there are just hitting us with spam and trying to get our passwords and take over our accounts and mess up our lives and you know and now ai is another more powerful tool and it's going to be used by those people um you know for basically uh really evil purposes and i hate to see technology being used that way it shouldn't be and some probably some types of regulation are are needed regulation is telling parties that are producing things you will obey, you will not do certain bad things. It's like our Bill of Rights. The Congress will not pass certain types of laws. And you know, you call that regulation. It's not like stopping you from doing your business. It's just saying, no, you've got to have some ethical concerns.
2: I'm also curious to how your thinking on AI has evolved since recent years. In 2018, you did this interview that I was watching yesterday. You said this about
5: AI. No machine sits down and says, hmm, what should I work on? Humans tell it what to work on. Mm -hmm. No machine machines can just do it well for us. So we're building technology that will make life easier for us. Where's the lack of jobs? Mm -hmm. At least where I come from, the United States, uh, you know, people have jobs.
2: And now we see what you're saying, and, and also talking about regulation. Can there be global regulation though for something like this technology?
5: No, there never can be. It's one of the reasons that technology has so many bad sides. I often say those that brought us this digital world, you know, when I look back at some of the easier life days and less worries about all this stuff and things worked more, I say, you know, those that brought us this digital revolution should be executed or worse yet, make them live in it. (laughs) And... That's so, so I, you know, yeah. So how can, you can not regulate bad people very well. Could AI be employed to spot all these little tricky, tricky little worded spams that are, you know, trying to get your passwords and all that. Could they spot that? It's never being used that way. It's being used by people who want to ooh, make a name for themselves or make money for themselves. And uh, um, that, that never quite goes as well as it should.
1: Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, look, stunning to see this type of really about face from someone who, as we said, has been called the godfather of A.I. We heard a little bit there. He touched on it a bit there. But what's he most concerned about here?
6: It's interesting, isn't it? We're seeing almost a sort of growing chorus of tech experts now warning about artificial intelligence. You know, after we've had months of huge developments in this technology and it's all very exciting. But Dr. Hinton, as you say, is one of the pioneers of AI. He did lots of work on neural networks. That forms really the foundation of so much of the AI we see today, particularly chatbots that are being developed by these big tech companies. And yet here he is leaving Google so that he can warn about the technology. And really he had a few points to make in this article with the New York Times. He says... When, something's ge- when is something generated or manipulated by AI? So short term, how are people going to know what's real and what's not? And we see this every single day. We see it whether it's in music. There was that song that purportedly was uh, Drake in the weekend performing. It wasn't. It was AI generated and got pulled off streaming platforms. There's the photos you see, for instance, that one of the Pope seemingly wearing a puffer coat. It wasn't. It was generated by AI. And when it gets to text, and you're looking at essays of students and so on and so on. It's really hard. And as uh, we heard there from the co-founder of Apple, how do you regulate that? Lots of people question whether it even can be regulated. Then there's the issue of the longer term issue of jobs and the disruption. And we can get more into that. And the third issue, and I thought this one was really interesting. It almost veered into sort of sci-fi fears, is what happens if and when AI becomes smarter than people? And in this article, Dr. Hinton said he worried that might be 30 to 50 years down the line, He no longer thinks that. And he goes as far as to say that he's concerned about the issue of potential autonomous weapons in the future. And at the heart of all this, the reason we're seeing so many tech experts saying there should be some sort of hiatus in the development is because there is something of an arms race when it comes to the big tech companies trying to race ahead, trying to develop their AI platforms and publish them very, very quickly. And so lots of people wanting to hit pause on all of that just to consider... The implications on society, on people, and I guess whether or not there can be some sort of regulation in this space.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. Look, every time one of these uh, founders does an interview, that, that is the big question, right? I mean, what's, what's the big race? What's the big rush? Uh, Anna, before I let you go, you just sort of touched on it there in terms of job loss. IBM making some news about operations and artificial intelligence. What are they saying? I mean, they see huge cost
6: efficiency here, and that's the beauty of AI. It is really efficient because it can replace some human tasks. But to this extent, I mean, this is in, this is really quite eye-opening. The CEO of IBM told Bloomberg, "I could easily see 30%, and this was the back-office jobs of IBM getting replaced by AI and automation over the next five years." Now they have about 26,000 back-office jobs, so you're looking at nearly. 8,000 jobs that they believe could be replaced by AI, jobs like HR, for example. Now, there is a fear over job disruption, and it's real. There's also the argument that AI will help create new jobs, will make jobs more efficient, will complement jobs. But there's no doubt that with any tech disruption that you see like this, whether it was the Internet, whether we go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, there's a very painful part before then when people lose their jobs.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because IBM, not necessarily related to AI, but recently announced that it was cutting about 3,900 jobs, 1.5 percent of its global Mm. workforce. So we're definitely going to see some structural changes in the workforce, as you point out, because of AI and because of technology, as we have already. Anna Stewart, wonderful to have you. Thank you. And straight ahead, it is a big week for the U.S. economy and U.S. economy watchers. We will discuss what the latest numbers tell us about the Fed's next move and IMAX celebrating a blockbuster quarter and gearing up for the summer box office. We are already talking about summer. My oh my, how time flies. We'll head to the movies with the CEO later in the show. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. investors are gearing up for a host of significant indicators on the economy this week. We have data on job openings coming in a short time. The Federal Reserve's policy meeting with another rate decision due on Wednesday. Fresh reading on jobless claims on Thursday, all leading up to Friday's critical jobs report. And... Let's not forget, earnings season still in full swing. While fears about the state of the U.S. banking sector are not going away, we have lots to chat about with my next guest. Joining me now is John Petridis. He is the portfolio manager at Tocqueville Asset Management. John, always wonderful to see you. Welcome to the program.
7: Thanks for having me on.
1: So, look, we still haven't heard from the major retailers. They report in two weeks or so the Walmarts, the Targets, the Home Depots or so. But what are your thoughts about corporate earnings thus far?
7: Surprisingly strong. Uh, You know, coming into yesterday, I think uh, nearly half of the companies in the S&P 500 reported and eight out of 10 have beaten Wall Street analyst expectations. So, uh, you know, we've been waiting for this. uh, Now, it doesn't mean that earnings aren't under pressure or going down. They're just doing better than what analysts had expected. and, and, And that's really the name of the game here.
1: Well, and I wonder when you look under the hood of the, the car here, when we look at revenue, when we look at some of the, the strength we're seeing, how much of this is uh, pricing pressure and how much of this is actual volumes in terms of what we're seeing?
7: Yeah, great question. It depends on the industry. So if you look in the consumer staples industry, you know the things that you buy in the grocery store, uh, it's not really being driven by volume. The consumer staples group, by and large, continue to pass through inflationary pricing onto the consumer, and they're getting it. So, So- The the pricing is making up for a drop in volume uh, on that front. Uh, If you look at other sectors like technology, sales have clearly slowed, but they are doing massive uh, cost cutting. And that's how they're supporting their earnings higher is because, you know, you're seeing, as you read the headlines, massive uh, layoffs.
1: Yeah. And you have to wonder, though, in terms of the consumer being able to absorb these higher prices, how much longer that can last. I mean, it has been really remarkable to see, despite the inflation, despite the higher uh, borrowing costs, that consumers have still been able to spend the way they have. Uh, John, in terms of tech, which you just touched on there, is the tech wreck behind us? Have they done enough cost cutting? Have they cut enough fat? Is that part of the, the cycle behind us?
7: Well, uh, we're definitely, it feels like we're through the worst of it. Um, you remember last year was really driven by two things. It was the fact that interest rates spiked so far, so fast. And, and technology are long-term stories. So when, when, when your cost to borrow money, aka interest rates are zero, well, you could throw the whole Hail Mary and, and, and invest in a long-term story. But when you start earning something on your cash, all of a sudden you say to yourself, well, I don't need to go out. That long and buy that long term thesis anymore. So that was one of the major issues last year for technology companies. The second issue that tech faced last year was expectations were so high coming out of 2021 that the analyst community thought that what ultimately turned out to be the COVID bump, they thought it was going to be long term demand. So I think we've worked through that expectation that the COVID bump expectations have clearly been reset. We Mm -hmm. do seem to be at the end of the Fed tightening cycle. uh, And I think that's a big reason of why you're seeing uh, growth in tech stocks rally strongly Mm -hmm. out of the gate this year.
1: Well, John, speaking of the Fed, the last time you and I spoke on the program in February, you told me you thought markets were getting a little complacent and maybe prematurely expecting the Fed to cut. Markets have continued to rally. Do you still believe that?
7: Uh, so uh, so the answer is, well, it depends. How, how, how about that? Uh, I'm hoping that the Fed does not raise interest rates at the next meeting. Uh, I think the inflationary data is slowing sufficient enough, and we're going to roll off really difficult comparisons. Remember this time last year uh, when Russia started its war with Ukraine, you had this massive spike in commodity prices, and you had the supply chain really still gunked up. You're going to roll off of that, all of that. So come June, July, August, you should really start to see a big decline in the inflationary data. And uh, there is a disconnect here for sure. And that is going to determine, in my opinion, part of the future of where stocks headed are headed. The Fed does not think that they need to cut interest rates before year end. And the market is pricing in after a, a, potential, a, a rate increase that the Fed will have to cut half of 1% before year end. And mm. the question is, who's going to be right? And to be honest with you, the Fed has doesn't have a really good track record over the past two years on signaling where inflation is headed or not headed. Mm. Uh, and, and, and the market has proven to be right and the Fed wrong.
1: Yeah. In terms of signaling, it'll be curious to see if tomorrow we, we, get, we hear these signals or messaging from Powell that they will begin to at least pause uh, because they have signaled so much thus far. Uh, John, before I let you go, what names or sectors do you like right now? What, what, what areas of opportunity do you see?
7: Yeah, despite the rally, uh, you know, we always have an allocation of gold in client portfolios. Uh, and, and we added to that gold uh, during the year or around the banking crisis. So or when, when the banks started to fail uh, and, and despite the rally and gold being nearly $2,000 an ounce, still think having gold as a portion of the portfolio makes a lot of sense. Uh, gold doesn't do well in the short term when interest rates go up. So if we're at the top of the interest rate cycle and potentially cutting interest rates, that's positive for gold. There still is a lot of uncertainty in the debt ceiling. That's positive for gold. There's geopolitical risk. That's positive for gold. So there's still a lot of turmoil out there that I think is supportive of owning gold in in, in a portfolio um, today.
1: Don't sleep on gold. All right. John Petridis, thank you. He is the portfolio manager at Tocco Asset Management. We'll have you back soon. And welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running on Wall Street. The major averages under a bit of pressure there. The Dow, Nasdaq, and S&P all lower by, let's call it, a quarter of a percent. Investors in wait-and-see mode ahead of tomorrow's important Fed policy decision. Also, lots of critical U.S. jobs data being released over the next few days as well, including Friday's all-important jobs report. And in jobs-related news, Morgan Stanley says that it will cut an additional 3,000 positions due to the ongoing investment banking slowdown. And IBM telling Bloomberg News that it is imposing a hiring freeze on thousands of positions that could soon be replaced by artificial intelligence. Shares of the online learning firm Chegg, meantime, plunging after an AI-related warning. You can see shares are off, wow, shocking, 46 percent. It says that students are starting to use ChatGPT for their homework and that it's using its services less. Better news, meantime, from Uber. Shares are up 5 percent. That's after a better-than-expected 29 percent rise in revenue. The CEO saying that Uber is off to a strong start. In 2023, I'll say 29 percent jump there. And from a strong start to a sudden stop in a case of writer's block in Hollywood, pay talks with 11,000 writers have failed, leading them to strike for the first time since 2007. Now, the immediate impact includes the suspension of the late night TV shows. Stephen Colbert, for his part, stood by his own writers during last night's edition, which was taped before the decision.
8: If a deal has not been reached, the union could go on strike tomorrow, which means that writers might have to do something
0: totally against their nature. Go outside. (laughs) These people right here, these, hello, these,
8: (laughs) these, these are our writers. These people, these are our writers, and I'll stick myself in there because I'm wga too, and they're so important
0: to our show.
1: Only Stephen Colbert could somehow make light of this. Uh, Let's bring in CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz, who is outside the Manhattan Theater, where Colbert is filmed. So, Vanessa, at the heart of this issue is pay, but also streaming. Walk us through how we got here.
9: Yeah, and Stephen Colbert its likely going to be a rerun this evening because of this writer's strike. And the sticking points that were six weeks ago when these negotiations started, they seem to remain today. Uh, We're getting a number value on just how far apart the writers and these studios are. The writers want an additional $429 million per year in compensation. The offer from the studios is $86 million. I want to walk you through what the studios are offering. They say they're Offering additional compensation. They're also offering uh, additional residuals on streaming, which is so critical to the writers. And they also say that they're willing to come up on those offers, but there are still major sticking points. Uh, staffing levels, the amount of writers in the room, uh, the duration of of writers on shows and movies and how to regulate artificial intelligence. And we're hearing from the writers that the residual offer from the studios just simply isn't enough. But the studios, we're talking about Amazon, we're talking about Apple, we're talking about Disney, we're talking about CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. They say that they've had to make some cost-cutting measures in recent years, including layoffs. But the writers say there's simply not as much work to go around, and especially because there's been this transition Rahel, from broadcast to streaming. Now, the last strike was in 2007. That was 15 years ago. That lasted 100 days. The economic impact from that 100-day strike, is estimated to be about $2 billion. If you adjust that for inflation, it's about $3 billion. And Rahel, later this afternoon at various locations in California and New York City, that is when we're going to see these writers come onto the picket line. This is day one, of course, but these two sides really seem like they have a lot of work to do to reach a deal. Rahel?
1: Yeah, well, if there's ever any question about how important the writers are, it's Uh, That data point there, $2 billion impact, $3 billion when adjusted for inflation. Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thank you. And staying with Hollywood and IMAX, the big screen movie experience, celebrating some big numbers right now, including the highest ever grossing first quarter. The greatest global market share ever and strong growth across all key metrics. It was a great quarter, to say the least. There are a host of new releases this year, including Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and Fast X, also known as Fast and Furious 10. But it's not just the blockbusters that are bringing in the dollars, because about a third of the IMAX box office was actually driven by non-Hollywood films, and many of its new theater signings are coming from high-value international markets. So, Rich Galfon is the CEO. Perfect to have you on this program. Rich, welcome to the program.
10: Thank you. As you were doing the intro, I was thinking exactly that. The theme for the first quarter for us was really international and globalization.
1: Absolutely. Well, we talked about it this morning on a programming call, so we're so great to have you today. We're so uh, fortunate to have you today. Before we talk about the first quarter, though, I just want to get a response. I'm not sure if you saw our previous report on the Writers Guild strike. What type of impact, if any, is that having on IMAX?
10: I think um, for the rest of this year, very little. The kind of films we do, um, Hollywood blockbusters or international films um, are pretty much all in the can for this year. So I don't really see an impact. I think if the strike goes on for months and months, you may start to see it have an impact on 24. But I right. think, as you talked about in the piece, the short term impact really is live programming a series, that episodic series that are in the middle of being produced right now. But these movies have been locked for quite a while, so I don't see an impact on us for quite a while.
1: Okay, good to know. Rich, let's talk about the first quarter. I mean, as I said, a really um, stellar quarter for IMAX. Walk us through how you got there.
10: So it's really um, um, two big pieces. One was the box office and the earnings, and the second part was the signings. On the box office and the earnings, it started off um, with the reopening of China after the pandemic. And then Avatar um, was a big part of driving the box office. Um, The unexpected part was local language films. So about a third of our box office came from Indian films, um, Japanese films, Chinese films, not only in their local language territory, but also playing really strongly in, in other territories. And, you know, not to minimize Avatar, but um, looking at Avatar, it set records in a lot of places in Western Europe, so places like France and Germany um, really had, you know, their their best runs of any film. So it was a combination of all that—the local language and really the breakout um, in Eastern Europe, in in Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and Asia. The second part of it was signings, which is new territories that we're going into, um, and that's theaters that will open in the next one to three years and we announced 63 of those through the end of april on our call versus 47 for the whole year last year and again um those were mostly um outside of north america and outside of um um, china places like southeast asia um, france um you know big deals in japan um there were some in north america but again, this global theme, which is somewhere IMAX's 90 countries, we've always gone, is really played out in the short-term results and the long-term outlook.
1: Yeah, and Rich, walk me through the calculus for for movies as they're the, as they're deciding. For example, I think about Creed, for example, uh, deciding to show in, in IMAX. Walk me through that calculus.
10: So generally, we do um, blockbuster Hollywood films, things you coming up like Indiana Jones or. The Flash or Mission Impossible or or Oppenheimer. But we also have a film for IMAX program, which is that um, really premium filmmakers like their films to kind of make a statement and have kind of transcend their more niche audiences. And Michael B. Jordan and Creed thought, gee, you know, a sports movie's never really been done in IMAX at this scale. If we shoot with IMAX cameras, we really could create a global event, and it worked. And the box office for Creed Three was really good. And you know, watching those punches hit in IMAX is, is really special. I certainly fell back in my seat, you know, when I saw them. Um, it's a different. It takes also, the
1: experience to a different level.
10: It it, it does. Um, you you got to be ready for it though. Like I'm not good when the right hook comes at me. But uh, fair enough. But it worked. It, it worked very well at the box office. Another. Yeah think people wouldn't expect is just last night, we announced that a, a documentary we're working on with Bad Robot um, called Blue Angels about the flying Navy stunt planes. Uh, we announced a deal with Amazon uh, mm. where they bought the streaming rights to the movie. So it'll go from IMAX to Amazon streaming. And I think that's another way that we're branching out and collaborating with the streamers, which as you know, is kind of new for this year. It used to be a little bit of a a tug of war. Now we're working together.
1: So watching that space, more sports movies, perhaps more documentaries. Rich, we don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to get in two quick questions. In terms of where we're seeing growth globally, we know it's not uniform across the globe, but what areas are performing strongest and are back at pre-pandemic levels? And and where does the U.S. fall in relation?
10: Uh, You know, I'd say pretty much everywhere right now, but particularly um, Western Europe, Southeast Asia and within Western Europe, um, France, the UK, Germany are doing very well. Um, the U.S., because of Super Mario Brothers, you know, started April in a terrific way. And Japan is our highest grossing market in the world with almost $2 million per screen. So, you know, we're pretty much tracking to pre-pandemic levels right now. We've got a much bigger market share than we had pre-pandemic. It's up 50 percent in the U.S. and about... Thirty-five percent in the rest of the world. Um, okay. So we're really firing on all cylinders right now.
1: And Rich, I have about thirty seconds or left. Left. I know you said uh, Super Mario Brothers. There, in terms of the slate moving forward, what what are you watching? What are you most excited about?
10: Um, you know, that's that's like saying which child do you like best. I'm excited <laughs> about a lot of things, but I'd say particularly, I think you know, Mission Impossible is going to be terrific. Oppenheimer with Chris Nolan, IMAX always does a disproportionate market share on that Dune with Denis Villeneuve, Uh, Indiana Jones has gotten great early buzz, and The Flash um, has has kind of come come to the front. We saw it at CinemaCon. They showed, and that looks extremely promising. Fast 10 coming out soon, Guardians coming out this weekend. You know, as I said, there's a lot of things in the near term.
1: So basically what you said, Rich, is that you love them all. You love all of your children. You love all of your babies.
10: Well, on CNN, I'm going to say that, you know, um, (laughs) there are times they all make me happier or less happy. But right now it's very promising.
1: Okay, very uh, politically correct answer. Rich Gelfand, the CEO of IMAX. Great to have you. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. Germany calling for the world to adopt new global targets for the expansion of renewable energy to sharply cut greenhouse gas emissions. This week, Germany, along with the UAE, is hosting its annual round of international climate change talks. Representatives from around 40 countries, about 40 countries, are discussing how to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Fred Pleiken is live in Berlin for us. So, uh, Fred, walk us through some of the the big conversations taking place there. (laughs)
8: yeah massive conversations Rahel and you know we were able to speak to the german foreign minister earlier uh, before the conference today started and she said one of the things that needs to happen is that rich nations need to help poor nations deal better with the impact of climate change that's not combating climate change that's not trying to decrease the temperatures around the world that's just dealing with the fallout that is already there from climate change and then As you said very correctly, she did say that the world also needs a bigger push to bring renewables, not just to industrialized nations, but also to nations that aren't industrialized yet. She says there needs to be a global push for that. And she said, quite frankly, at this point in time, she believes that the world is failing. Here's what she said.
7: We all know it's not enough to describe that we're not meeting our targets. We have to say how we want to change course to finally get back on the 1.5 degrees path.
8: The 1.5 degrees path, that obviously is the goal of the nations at COP28, the big COP28 that's going to happen later this year in the UAE. And uh, the, the Germans obviously saying right now the world not on that path. And, you know, one of the things that she mentioned at the conference today is she talked about a horrible drought that's currently going on in Spain where right now as we speak the temperatures are much higher than they even would normally be and there simply isn't any rain. And we were able to see that up close and the impact that that is having on the climate there and certainly also on the people there as well here's what we witnessed from afar even a natural disaster can look majestic but up close the full impact of the global climate emergency is clear to see this is the sao reservoir near barcelona normally one of the largest bodies of fresh water in this part of spain but months of drought and the water levels are so low an entire medieval village, usually underwater, has come to light. The folks here say normally you'd barely be able to see even the tip of the medieval church because it would be almost fully submerged. But now, as you can see, the church is very much on land and the authorities here fear things will get much worse once the summer's heat really sets in. The Sao Reservoir is already at less than 10% capacity and that's causing hundreds of thousands of acres of farmland to dry up. All of this wheat is probably lost. Farmer Santi Caudevilla shows me why.
2: The grain should
8: be milky, he said. We're in a critical moment. If it doesn't rain, this will end up empty. We should be seeing the grain come up to here, but it's only like this. If it doesn't rain in the coming week, the crop will be zero. But there is no rain in sight, and temperatures in Spain have skyrocketed. Scientists at the Institute of agri Research and Technology are trying to find ways to make very little water go a longer way. Wow, Chief scientist Juan Girona says yeah. like, efficiency like the, needs to be all maximized.
3: All it's our goal, mm. how taking the most of our drop of water.
8: Just like the crops, the people in this area are also in survival mode. Dozens of towns are without water and need to get it trucked in. The village Castelsir hasn't had any for about a year, and residents say they can't even remember the last time it rained. I don't recall, Juan tells me. It's been a long time, a year or more, without proper rain. Nothing. This region of Spain is a breadbasket for all of Europe. And while the authorities say they're building desalination plants to combat the water crisis, the head of the region's water authority says life here might change dramatically soon.
9: Sometimes I think about the capacity of the territory. I mean, is this a country where we can handle with the increase of citizens, tourists, industry, farmers, agriculture? or we should stop.
8: And that point might be closer than some believe. Back at the Sao Reservoir, authorities are actually draining most of the remaining water to prevent this precious and ever scarcer resource from getting contaminated by the sludge at the bottom of this once mighty lake. So there we could really see, Rahel, up close, the impact that climate change is already having and and obviously the lack of rain and the lack of water as well on the people there in that region of Spain and because it's such an important place for food in Europe, also on the rest of Europe as well. And one of the things that really stuck out was one of the folks that we spoke to said he believes that one of the next big world wars, as he put it, could be for fresh water. And that brings us back to the climate conference that we're seeing here in Berlin today, where also the German foreign minister said she believes that climate change is already a big factor for instability around the world. Rahel.
1: Oh, fascinating. Fred, really interesting to see just the, uh, the, and that Spanish farm where crops should be, where those wheat should be, but where they actually are now and the impact yeah. it's already having, um, on some Spanish farmers. Fred Pleiken, thank you. Welcome back. The legal battle between the big D's, Disney and DeSantis is far from de-escalating the high profile brawl, taking a new legal turn with the Florida government board now countersuing Disney. Steve Contorno is here with the latest. Steve, look, this has been a long time coming. This started even before uh, Bob Iger came back. Bring us up to speed.
11: Yeah, this is a battle that's been going back and forth since last year, really, and all stems from, Uh, a bill that Governor DeSantis signed into law that restricts how schools teach sexual orientation and gender identity. Disney objected to the bill. So DeSantis went after their special taxing district. This is a district that has surrounded Disney's theme parks and gave them the power to basically control their own government, essentially. They do the roads, the, the sewage system, the fire department, all that is that they have operated since the beginning of their theme park. Well, DeSantis has stepped in and said as retaliation for speaking out against this bill, he's taking away that, that, that special power and putting his own people in charge of this district. Well, Disney at the 11th hour pushed through a bunch of agreements that basically shifted the power to, to the company. Uh, the new board came in, discovered they were essentially powerless, and so they voted last week to nullify those agreements. That prompted Disney to sue in federal court, and now this, this board is suing Disney Uh, in a state court. So we have these sort of dueling lawsuits that suggest that this is going to be fought in the courts now for the the months to come. Governor DeSantis, though, is not backing down. Yesterday, he addressed this issue during a press conference. Here's what he had to say about what Disney's doing here.
5: It is wrong for one corporation to basically corrupt a local government, run it as their own fiefdom, be exempt from laws, have all kind of benefits that nobody else uh, has for them to act like they have the ability to veto that uh, basically is putting their thumb uh, is, is putting their thumb in the eye of the voters of the state.
11: Now, you, I should mention that fiefdom that Governor DeSantis mentioned, that is a power that was given to Disney by the state. But DeSantis has said no more under his watch.
1: Steve Contorno, not easy to explain, almost a, more than a year of back and forth in less than two minutes. So we appreciate it. Thank you. Good context, good context. That's Steve Contorno there. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Thanks for watching. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night.